Chapter Eight of Mars Is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Eight. Unlike Jonathan Trilling, Commander Littlefield was the kind of man who was what he was in an uncomplicated way. You didn't have to try to analyze why he impressed you as he did, because it was all there on display, right out in the open. He was big and robust-looking, with a granite-firm jaw and the kind of features that take a long time to develop the lines of character that are etched into them, because a man who has his emotions well under control in his youth will pass into middle age before you can tell from his expression just how much maturity and strength resides in him. There are bland-faced lads who seem to have no lines of character at all in their countenances, up to about the age of twenty-eight. But when you hear them talk, you change your mind very quickly about them. And when they are forty-five, the lines are all there, deeply etched, and the mystery is explained. Commander Littlefield was that kind of man. We had several very serious things to discuss, because five hours had passed since I'd sat facing him in the same chair, and Helen Barclay had sat in another chair at right angles to a third chair, which he had drawn out from his desk and occupied for a full hour without a coffee break, his eyes searching her face as she talked. His stare was a kind of interrogation in itself, and it must have been hard for her to endure. I think it would have angered me a little if I hadn't suspected what was behind it. Her story stood up very well, and had the ring of truth, and her eyes never wavered. But he was hoping they would. Then he could detect in her eyes a flicker of hesitation, of evasiveness, which would give her away. But he hadn't. Her story had stood up almost too well, because the truth always has a few flaws and inconsistencies in it. Memory is never a perfect enough mirror to permit anyone to avoid contradictions when they are doing their best to tell nothing but the truth, even under oath. But she hadn't seemed to be lying, and in the end I think she convinced him completely, because toward the end he stopped looking at her as if every word she said was impressing him unfavorably. And now she was in the sick bay, recovering from shock, and I was back again for another talk with the commander. He began by saying, I don't know just how I should address you, Mr. Graham, sir. That Silver Hawk gives you a colonization board clearance that's a little on the special side, you'll have to admit. The first man who wore it got a little angry when anyone addressed him as general, because that's a strictly military title, and military titles haven't been in common use for forty years. There's not supposed to be any army any more, on Earth or on Mars. But I've always sort of liked General, and that insignia is practically the equivalent of five stars. I'm afraid I don't like General at all, I said. The title is Ralph. Well, suit yourself, Ralph. I'm a simple soldier at heart, I suppose. Always will be, even though I hold the rank of commander. You're young enough to be my son, so that informal crap doesn't go too much against the grain, if you're that serious about it. I'm serious about it, I said, and you're not old enough to be my father. An older brother, perhaps. You can't stretch it any further than that. 
What do you mean I can't? I'm an old man of forty-eight. Hair thinning, going a little to fat. My God, a Wendell Atomics or Endicott Fuel top executive couldn't look any older, and they've got a head start on the rest of us. They start burning out at thirty-five. There's not an ounce of fat on you, as far as I can see, I assured him. That's going to handicap you on Mars, Ralph. Eyesight not what it should be in a five-star general. Look again. Look closer. I've got a pot belly you'd notice all right, if I didn't exercise to keep it down. I'd skipped over his reference to Wendell Atomics and Endicott, maybe subconsciously, but it must have registered belatedly in a very pronounced way, because something in my expression turned him dead serious in an instant. No man ever speaks with complete levity about his age, but what there was of ironic amusement in his gray eyes vanished, and his lips tightened. Well, suppose we go over what we've got, he said. I'll be grateful for any ideas, any suggestions you may care to make. I found out something that's going to give you a jolt. It may even rock you back on your heels depending on how easily you can be rocked. But it will keep, until we've discussed what she told us. What do you think of her story? I believe it, I said. I didn't think it was necessary to elaborate. Well, I'm afraid I do too, more's the pity. If I thought she was lying, I'd have more of a lever to pry what we don't know loose. There was a thin sheet of paper covered with very fine handwriting on his desk. He picked it up and ran his eyes over it. I sort of summarized what she told us, he said. But there's no sense in your reading this. I can summarize it even more briefly by skipping two-thirds of what I have here. You might as well, I told him. She talked and we listened for at least twenty minutes. Then we both questioned her. In a question-and-answer session like that, the vital points are apt to get a little blurred. Well, we know she did something no one has ever done before. Stowed away on a Mars ship. I'd have said it couldn't be done, and so would you, I'm sure, because you're as familiar with the inspection routine as I am. You pass through it. No one could possibly get inside a Mars rocket without a board clearance and a personal ten-point identification check every step of the way. In other words, you can't just ascend the launching pad, be whisked up to the passenger section, and walk right in. There's only one way you can get inside without passing the four inspection points, with machines x-raying you from head to toe. I know, I said. It was a damn clever stunt. It was more than a stunt. It was an achievement on the creative genius level. It took planning and foresight, and luck. A great deal of luck. But that doesn't detract from the brilliance of it. She found out that we were installing a new cybernetic robot to replace one that had developed electronic fatigue and had to be removed for repairs and a long rest. And she knew that we wouldn't x-ray a robot or subject it to any of the usual tests. It would just be wheeled right in. Littlefield paused for an instant, then went on. She knew there was plenty of room inside a cybernetic robot that large, between the tiers of memory banks and all the other gadgetry, for the carrying out of what she had in mind. 
a stowaway gamble that was almost sure to succeed. She provided for her comfort during the long trip in half-dozen ingenious ways, as we know, and made sure that the food concentrates she took along were high in essential proteins. She knew, of course, that she couldn't stay inside the robot without coming out at all. She'd have to emerge occasionally, if only to ease the psychological strain. But she used good judgment, and only emerged when she was absolutely sure that it would be safe. But once she didn't, I said. Once she didn't. Once she felt she couldn't stand the tensions that were building up in her any longer, and she took a chance and came out when she wasn't sure the chart room would be deserted. You told me you thought it was never left unguarded. Well, that isn't strictly true. There's a built-in security system in all the robots, and we can risk leaving it unguarded for a few minutes, when every member of the crew is needed elsewhere, to take care of some particularly troublesome space headache. That's what we call the small and seldom very serious emergencies which are always arising in a skyship this large. But if she heard someone moving about, she must have been crazy to emerge, I said. That's just it. She wasn't sure she heard anyone. In fact, she was almost sure it would be safe to emerge. She'd learned to trust her instincts, and the silence was almost unbroken. Just once she thought she heard a slight sound, but she put it down to the tension that was building up in her. She felt she had to emerge. And he caught her, I said, nodding, and was more enraged than he had any right to be. His fury was maniacal. If you'd seen the look on his face and the way he was twisting her wrist, you'd have been sure as I was that he was quite capable of killing her. And that's the most puzzling part of it. We can't explain it, and neither can she. That's the one part of her story I was afraid you wouldn't believe. I didn't for a moment, Littlefield said. I was sure she was lying, until the look of bewilderment in her eyes convinced me she was telling the truth. You didn't want to talk about him until you'd examined the body, I said. I guess I got a little angry when you were so damned insistent on that point. I was just about to, well, use that silver bird to make you change your mind. That used to be called pulling rank on someone you respect and who has every right to tell you off. Since you like to play soldier, and I mean that in a complimentary way, you're free to go ahead and tell me off now if you want to. Hell no. You had every right to press me. I just felt a little guilty and ashamed, I guess, to think that I'd let a crewman come aboard the skyship who had managed in some way to deceive the board. I was pretty sure, even then, that his clearance papers must have been forged, but I wanted a chance to examine the body before I committed myself one way or the other. I guess I'd have done the same, I said. Yes, well... I'd have gone right down to the chart room and examined the body before I listened to what she had to say, if you hadn't given me some very sound advice. If we questioned her while she was in a keyed-up state, we'd have a better chance of getting at the truth. I'd almost tripped over that one myself, so I didn't rate the compliment he was paying me. But it was too minor to make me feel conscience-bound to disillusion him. 
You saw me click the officer section communicator on and talk into it for a minute or two, he went on. I ordered a double guard posted in the chart room, but I told them not to touch the body until I had a chance to get down there myself. It's just as well I did, because something was found on the body I wouldn't have wanted anyone else to see. He was smiling a little, and I wondered why, until he exploded the bombshell. The thing he'd said would rock me back on my heels. He'd deceived the board with a vengeance, apparently. There was a sealed envelope on him, and when I tore it open, there was a card in it. It wasn't a board clearance card. It was a Wendell Atomics private police card, and it identified him as the kind of secret agent you'd trade in for a snake if you had to have something poisonous on board and were given a free choice in the matter. The Wendell police are little better than hired killers, although, perhaps, a few of them are generous-minded enough to feel that, when you've beaten a man insensible, it's going a little too far to put a bullet in him as well. And the Wendell secret agents are the worst sadists of the lot. They're hand-picked for shrewdness, and when you get intelligence along with brutality, there's no refinement of cruelty that won't be resorted to when the going gets rough. Good God, I said. So that's why... No, no. It doesn't quite explain why just the sight of Helen Barclay emerging from the robot enraged him the way it did. Just the fact that there was a woman stowaway on board shouldn't have angered him at all. It wasn't his headache, because he was merely masquerading as a crewman. Even a man who felt some responsibility in the matter would have only been a little angered. Littlefield nodded. Don't think that hasn't occurred to me. If he'd never set eyes on her before, or had no idea who she was, it's hard to see why he should have become enraged, as you say. That's why I've gone to such lengths to make sure she was telling us the full truth when she explained why getting to Mars was so important to her. He didn't have to read from the paper he was still holding to help me recall in detail everything she had said during that part of the question-and-answer session. It had made too deep an impression on me. It had also struck a vital nerve because it was tied in with my assignment. Not directly, because I could have completed my big job without so much as talking to her again. But she was going to Mars because of something that Wendell Atomics had done. Wendell Atomics was the exposed nerve, because anything that had to do with the Martian power combines was of vital interest to me, if only on the general information level. In her case, it was a personal matter, just between Wendell and herself. A very small matter to Wendell, but overwhelmingly important to her. Her brother, an electronic engineer, was dying by inches in a Wendell laboratory. Slow, radioactive poisoning meant very little to Wendell Atomics, apparently, when just one small human cog was afflicted with it, and they still needed his services. So she had used her own knowledge of electronics and a very great resourcefulness and a high IQ to stow away in a cybernetic robot, and was on her way to Mars to see what a woman of courage entirely alone could do to save the life of the only brother she had. She had tried to get a clearance from the board and failed, and that explained how she happened to be in the new Chicago spaceport bar when my own life had been in even more immediate danger. 
because slow radioactive poisoning takes a long time to kill, and if you can stop it in time, there's always a chance that the victim will recover. I've been checking up ever since you left, Littlefield was saying. I managed to get through to Earth on the needle frequencies, and Trilling knows now that you showed me the silver bird. The code I used to tell him that was too complicated to be broken by the big-brained inhabitants of Alpha Centauri's third planet, if, as seems unlikely, such a planet exists. And you didn't even tell me, I said. I suppose I should be burned up about it. No, you shouldn't be. I just saved you a lot of unnecessary explaining. You can talk to Trilling all you want to from here on in, but I've cushioned the shock for you taking a little of the edge off the way he seemed to feel for a minute or two. Well, all right, I said. Just what did you tell him? I asked him to do what he could to confirm her story. So far, everything she told us seems to check out. Of course, they haven't been able to turn up too much, and she could still be lying. But we may get more on it later on. Don't count on it, though. I may not even be able to contact Trilling again. The needle frequencies are as unreliable as hell, as you know. But you just said I could talk to Trilling myself. If we're lucky. You can't express yourself with precision when you're as troubled as I am right now. I was troubled too, perhaps more than he was. But just trying to make that concern dwindle a little by turning all the knobs on and off kept me from thinking about it. Well, he could have recognized her, I said. There could have been a link there, since he was a Wendell secret agent, and her brother works for Wendell. Maybe they sent him her brother's photograph over the needle frequencies, and said, Look around for a girl who resembles this man, and keep an eye on her. She's one little girl we're worried about. Well, sure, that could be it. It wouldn't sound quite so ludicrous, Commander, if it was her photograph they managed somehow to send him. Maybe they secured one from her brother without his knowing about it. But still, it wouldn't make much sense. Why should they fear her enough to put a secret agent on her trail? One helpless woman forty million miles from Mars? He couldn't have known she'd smuggle herself on board the rocket in a cybernetic robot, because his rage when he discovered her precluded that. And why would he make the trip if he was out to get her and, for all he knew, and to the contrary... She was still somewhere in New Chicago. If he was trailing her, he could have suspected she might be on board and may have been searching everywhere for her, Littlefield pointed out. That would even explain his rage when he finally got his hands on her, if we remember the kind of sadistic human animal he was. Frustration alone could produce a rage as violent as that in a Wendell agent. Days and nights of fruitless searching. But... I agree with you that it doesn't make sense otherwise. The stumbling block, as you say, is the difficulty in imagining how Wendell Atomics could possibly regard her as that serious a menace, or fear her at all, for that matter. That was as far as we got. The officer section communication instrument on Littlefield's desk started buzzing, and he swung about to pick it up with an almost joyful eagerness. I was sure that at any other time he would have accepted that call with no visible display of emotion, just as a routine necessity. But when you've reached a stone wall in a discussion of vital importance, 
and the odds against your making any further progress seem insurmountable, for the moment at least. Practically any interruption will be as welcome as sunlight after a drenching rain or a pea-soup fog. It's certainly better than beating your head against stone. He listened for perhaps ten seconds with the instrument pressed to his ear, with no pronounced change of expression. Then his face blanched, and a look of horror came into his eyes. He slammed the instrument down and headed for the door on the run, completely unmindful of his dignity. Then he seemed to remember that he owed me an explanation. A man of principle will usually take a second or two out for that even when his home is in flames, and turned a yard from the door to shout at me. Someone got the nose cone panel open, climbed outside, and is crawling along the airframe toward the jet section. He's wearing magnetic boots, and if I'm not mistaken, he's equipped with everything he needs to blow the rocket apart. When he saw the look on my face, he added reassuringly, We've still got a good chance of stopping him in time, because he just climbed out. But we'll have to bring most of the airframe into sharp focus on the viewplate, and pinpoint his every movement. It came as such a shock to me that I felt I had a good chance of suffocating, just from the way my throat tightened up and my heart started pumping blood at twice its usual rate. I'm not quite sure how I managed to follow him at a distance of not more than fifteen feet, down three intership ladders and along four branching passageways, without once stopping to get my breath back. I doubt if I could have done that anyway. Right foot, then left. Right, left. Right, left, Ralphie boy. And don't give up the ship. Never give up the ship when there's a chance to save it. There's nothing painful about being vaporized in space. Remember that. Keep it firmly in mind. Nothing painful. Nothing sad. Just a quick end to all you've had. I don't know why I thought the chart room looked deserted. Like a big, unoccupied mausoleum with tears for coffins. Dozens of coffins, running up both of its sides. No coffins yet, just the empty shelves for burial time had not yet arrived. But how could the chart room have looked deserted when it wasn't at all? There were a dozen officers standing in front of the big lighted screen, and when we crossed the room to join them without announcing our arrival, well, that made fourteen. I can't even explain how I got the idea there was a chill in the air that seemed to wrap itself around me in moist, clinging folds because no section of the skyship was more comfortably heated. I didn't spend more than a minute or two trying to puzzle it out, because the furious six shapes of nightmare, to quote from a poem I wasn't sure I'd ever read, only disturb you when you give them more encouragement than they're entitled to. The only really important thing was that we could see them in bent light on the big screen, a tiny space-suited figure climbing along the airframe, laden down with something cumbersome that he kept pushing before him in a completely weightless way as he inched further and further towards the rocket's stern. All at once I knew what was going to happen to him. I was as sure of it as I am that I have two big toes that point a little inward and that Joan sometimes tenderly jokes about. Between Earth and Mars, space isn't empty. It hasn't been empty for more than half a century, 
which is a pretty good record on the survival scale for man-made mechanical implants. The early Sputniks didn't last one-tenth as long. I knew without waiting for Commander Littlefield to finish what he was saying to one of the officers, and issue a command that the needle frequencies scattered throughout the void on all sides of us were the only composite weapon we could count on to save the skyship and all the people between its decks who didn't want to be vaporized. And that took in practically everyone on board. Sure, I know, everyone had thought that the millions of filament-thin wires which had been put into orbit around Earth in the 7th and 8th decades of the 20th century, and later into orbit around Mars and far out into interstellar space, would only be used for purposes of communication. Project Needles, or, if you want to be strictly technical, Project West Ford. God grant that they may someday be used in no other way, but when a man climbs out on the airframe of a skyship for the sole purpose of blowing it up, there is only one way I can do justice to the speed with which it happened, and the awful, mind-numbing finality of it. It is not something which should be recorded in a paragraph, a page, but in two sentences at most. Commander Littlefield issued a command, and a light on the instrument panel blinked, and a million magnetized filaments converged, united, and so united, converged again on the airframe of the skyship. There was a blinding flash of light, and the tiny human figure was gone. The first words Commander Littlefield spoke, after that, were to me. Whoever he was, he must have wanted her dead pretty badly, to have been willing to blow up the skyship and kill himself in the process. There was a strange look on his face, and his gray eyes met mine with a question in them. Then he spoke the question aloud. Or was it you, Ralph, whom he had in mind? End of chapter 8